That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 445. It's titled, From Boom to Bust, Why China's Stocks Lagged Behind Its Economy and Where to Invest Next. We have recently been working on adding cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratios, or Schiller PEs, to asset camp, our stock index reporting service. As part of the process, I've been working on the formulas to add to our database and ended up spending some time studying the long-term performance of the Chinese stock market and the underlying drivers. I was shocked to see how poorly the Chinese stock market has performed. Since the stock exchange was reestablished, the original stock exchange in China is the Shanghai Stock Exchange. But it was closed for decades from 1949, when the People's Republic of China was founded, up until November 1990, when it was officially reestablished. Around the same time, the Shenzhen Stock Exchange opened in December 1990. The first Chinese stock index that I'm aware of or at least have data to, is the MSCI China Index. It began on December 31st, 1992. At the time, beginning of 1993, there were 53 publicly listed firms trading on either either the Shanghai or Shenzhen Stock Exchange. When they were reestablished in the case of the Shanghai Index, or brand new, the Shenzhen Index, in 1990, there was only 10 listings. Now, by 1992, there were 53 listings. That's the starting point. Over the next 30.6 years, through last Friday, August 18th, 2023, the MSCI China Index has returned 0.7% annualized in Chinese yuan and 0.6% annualized in U.S. dollars. Less than 1% annualized return. That compares to 8.4% for the global stock market in local currencies and 8.1% in U.S. dollars. That would be the MSCI All-Country World Index. The U.S. stock market over that 30-year period has, has returned 10% annualized. It's absolutely amazing when you consider Chinese economic output. Its GDP grew from 1992, it was at $427 billion, to $18.1 trillion today. The economy is 42 times larger, the second largest economy in the world. The overall size of the stock market, as measured by market capitalization, which is the number of shares outstanding times the price. There's way more stocks outstanding now. And so the size of the stock market went from less than $100 billion in the early 1990s to $12 trillion today. Yet, investing in a Chinese stock index mutual fund, or ETF, has been incredibly disappointing. Except for one amazing decade, from 2001 to 2011. And this was the time that I was overweight China by way of being overweight emerging markets, both in my personal portfolio, as well as in the institutional accounts that we managed at my old firm, 
FEG advisors. That 10-year period was amazing because China outperformed the U.S. stock market by over 10% annualized. When we invest in an index mutual fund or ETF, we're investing in a basket of stocks that tracks some segment of the market. And the factors that drive those stock returns over time are the earnings. Are the earnings growing? And what percent of those earnings are being paid out in dividends? So if the earnings are growing, then the dividend's growing. And so the long-term driver of returns is the dividend yield plus the earnings growth plus any change in valuations as investors choose to either pay more or less for those dividends and earnings. Over the past 30 years, the aggregate earnings for the MSCI China index have not grown. It's been flat. Now, it wasn't flat the whole time. They dipped and then they came back during that remarkable decade. But if we look at the starting earnings amount back in 1992 compared to today, it's about the same. The Chinese stock market, over that 30-year period, there's been three distinct phases. The first phase, Chinese stocks underperformed. From January 1st, 1993, right when the MSCI China Index was established, through December 31st, 2000, the Chinese stock market fell about 75%. The first earnings data I could get was October 1995. And from then until the end of December 2000, China's earnings fell 90%. In that remarkable decade from January 1st, 2001, through June 30th, 2011, China's earnings then increased ninefold. They grew at an annualized rate of 23%. And it was during that period that the MSCI China index returned 13.5% annualized, compared to 1.1% for U.S. stocks. Now, the price-to-earnings ratio of the China index fell during that time from 40 down to 12.6, so that was a drag on performance, but still... With 23% annualized earnings growth plus a 2.2% dividend yield, overall returns were 13.5% annualized. So that valuation decline cost about 10 percentage points per year. Since then, though, since June 30th, 2011 through August 18th, 2023, the MSCI China index has returned only 1.6% annualized. That compares to the global stock market, which has returned just about 8% annualized over that same period. Why such big swings? It has to do with the, the overall economy and how that economy developed. The first stage of economic reform began in the 1980s. In 1978, virtually all companies in China were state-owned enterprises. And then during the 80s, under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, State-owned enterprises began to reform some. Managers were given some autonomy and performance targets, and they were able to keep some of the profits depending on how the state-owned enterprise performed. But the, the incentives just weren't quite there yet. After so many years under state control, the state-owned enterprises accumulated very large losses, especially because they were facing more competition from foreign invested enterprises, as well as some businesses started up by some of the townships. The industrial output of state-owned enterprises between 1978 and 1993, it fell from 80% of total output down to around 60%. And yet there weren't any closures of the state-owned enterprises. They were just nursed along, adding more and more debt as they incurred more and more losses. And some of those losses accrued to investors. 
because some of those state-owned enterprises started to be listed on stock exchanges. And it was part of the 14th Chinese Communist Party Congress in 1992 that the central government endorsed the creation of the socialist market economy. So just giving managers more autonomy wasn't enough. They wanted public ownership as one of the reform goals. In the 15th Party Congress in 1997, state-owned enterprises were called a pillar of the economy, and the legal status of private ownership was formally endorsed by the new constitution in 1999. To 1998 and 2000, the state had a really a three-year battle to restructure state-owned enterprises. There were layoffs that began in 1995, but it was a huge period of restructuring and it was not a great time to be invested in the Chinese stock market. As I mentioned, it, it fell over 75% during the 1990s. One of the interesting ways that China decided to develop is the central government wanted to retain control of the largest state-owned enterprises, the top 1,000, which were mostly in what are known as upstream sectors. So oil and refinery companies, steel and chemicals construction and infrastructure, power generation, banks, railways. Those remained under state control. Even if they had an initial public offering and publicly traded, the state still maintained majority control of those enterprises. That compares to the downstream enterprises were often smaller private firms, businesses in food and agriculture, beverages, textile manufacturing, printing, so businesses that in many regards drew upon the upstream companies that were state-controlled, there were more enterprises, private enterprises, in the downstream companies. By 1997, the 500 largest state-owned enterprises made up about 30% of state industrial assets and 63% of state-owned enterprise profits. Throughout that period of, of the 90s, there were more companies that went public. And by the end of the year 2000, there were over 1,000 publicly traded companies, many of them state-owned enterprises, and the overall size of the Chinese stock market was about $600 billion, or 54% of China's GDP. When a Chinese company wants to go public, it needs permission from the China Securities Regulatory Commission. And there was actually a quota system saying who could go public each year and the ownership that needed to be maintained by the state the management. Generally, the academic studies that I saw that when a company went public, especially between 1990 and 2000, when the stock market severely underperformed, after the public listing, there was a deterioration in economic performance for up to six years. The companies, even though they were public, they weren't disciplined and they didn't do very well. It took a long time after being state-owned enterprises under communism to be hopefully a dynamic organization, even though the state maintained controls. And there was, there was a lot of baggage of inefficiencies from having a centrally managed economy. Many of those companies really hadn't experienced competition. There were governance issues, often misaligned incentives or a short-term focus that hurt the company longer term. Clearly, there were some external factors in the 90s, such as the Asian financial crisis. But the bottom line is, throughout this tumultuous period of the 90s, there were more publicly listed companies. There were index mutual funds investing in China, but it severely underperformed. Things began to change, though, in, particularly in 2001, when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. That was a huge tailwind. And there was a significant increase 
in China's working age population, more workers. And that contributed to a faster growing economy, particularly because now the world was open in terms of exports. The World Trade Organization was established in 1995, and its purpose is to promote free trade, to reduce trade barriers. To become a member, you have to be admitted. Right now, there's around 164 members. One of the core principles is most favored nation status, so treating all trading partners equally. It was controversial to invite China into this partnership, especially considering the political background, human rights abuses, but they were admitted and it lit a fire under the Chinese economy. From 1992 to 2000, U.S. imports from China grew from $25 billion to $100 billion. But then from 2001 to 2011, after China was admitted to the WTO, imports into the U.S. from China quadrupled from $100 billion to $400 billion. And then from 2011, it has slowed. About $537 billion Today, about $137 billion increase. But that, that period, 2001 to 2011, massive growth in exports, combined with a continuation of working population growth. Back in 1980, there were 600 million workers in China aged 15 to 64. By the year 2000, it was over 800 million, but then grew to over a billion by 2011. That growth in the workforce was partly due to a baby boom during the 50s and 60s. Recall that the one-child policy in China wasn't introduced until 1979, and it took a while for it to really to be enforced. So there was children being born in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and those children became of working age during the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. In addition, improvements in health care led to increased life expectancy. So more workers, including workers that left the rural areas and moved to the manufacturing centers in the cities. So big increases in exports, big increase in investments in infrastructure and building as the Chinese economy modernized, and it helped the state-owned enterprises. These upstream businesses even though they didn't necessarily increase their efficiency by much, because the economy was growing so quickly, with GDP growth over 10% per year, they participated as the private companies and some of the other smaller companies, publicly traded including, would need to buy materials from the chemical companies, these upstream companies that didn't necessarily increase their productivity by much, but still managed to do very, very well. And some of those were publicly traded, and that's why the stock market did so well in the 2000s. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The third phase, though, has been a struggle. As I mentioned, the annualized growth in the MSCI China index has only been 1.4% annualized. State-owned enterprises still play a very large role in China. Listed state-owned enterprises make up 40% of the Chinese stock market. There hasn't been any great reforms in these larger state-owned enterprises. They're still not very efficient, especially compared to their international peers. And with the rise of China's president, Xi Jinping, he wants to strengthen those state-owned enterprises use them to advance the goals of the Chinese Communist Party, which may or may not be what is in the best interest of shareholders. There's also a big lack of transparency and some distrust. There has not been more movement to privatize the economy to allow for additional competition. And as a result, we have these big, lumbering state-owned enterprises that make up a meaningful portion of the Chinese stock market. The chairman of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, Yi Himan, told a forum last November 2022 that there are efforts to, quote, explore a valuation system with Chinese characteristics. What that means is they want these publicly traded state-owned enterprises, which Yi says have a pillar role in the economy, to sell for higher valuations on the stock market. They're too cheap. For example, China's communication construction, a state-owned enterprise, was trading in late 2022 at a forward price-to-earnings ratio of 6.2. The China Railroad Group, a forward PE of 4. They were cheap. And one of the things China did was had their government-backed asset managers set up 16 additional mutual funds with a mandate to invest in state-owned enterprises to try to push up the valuations of these companies. There's over 1,400 state-owned enterprises listed in the Chinese stock market. But some of that legacy inefficiency remains, and it has held down the China stock market. James Wu, who is a Shanghai-based fund manager, said, after selling many of his banking stocks, I'm not going to hold on to an investment only because the government says it's worth buying. There are better investment opportunities than state banks that lack growth potential and independent management. So the stock market continues to underperform in the past decade because of inefficient state-owned enterprises. But there's also some structural headwinds. If the employment pool, the working age group, is growing and they can sell to the rest of the world, that can mask over 
inefficiencies in state-owned enterprises. That's what happened between 2001 and 2011. But now the workforce is aging and expected to drop. It's basically flatlined at a billion workers for the past decade, but now it's starting to fall. There's been much slower migration from rural areas into the cities, and there's been some geopolitical fracturing under Xi Jinping, more pressure on trade with China because they got to be such a large percentage of trade of exports and ran such big trade imbalances that countries started pushing back. In addition, there's been other countries with lower priced laborers that have been able to compete more effectively with China on price. China is going through a a severe slowdown in demographics. The number of births in China now is less than half of what it was seven years ago. Adam Tooze, who is a Columbia University history professor that specializes in economic crises, said we're witnessing a gear shift in what has been the most dramatic trajectory in economic history. Speaking of China, during that period from 1980 to 2011, with the particular strong growth from 2001 to 2011, and I I know in the accounts that we managed at my firm, that double-digit return of Chinese stocks and emerging markets overall significantly helped our performance to allow us to outperform because the Chinese market, emerging markets, did so much better than the U.S. stock market during that time. The workforce in China will start to shrink in the 2030s, which means in order to increase economic output, they have to increase productivity and innovation, that it can't just be adding more and more debt, infrastructure investment. And what's interesting in this period is the government seems more tolerant of allowing slower economic growth. They're just not stepping in and providing huge stimulus like they did during the pandemic or during the great financial crisis. Their response to what's going on now has been somewhat mixed. And we're seeing it with manufacturing activity contracting, exports have falling, youth unemployment has climbed to its highest ever, 21% in June for workers aged 16 to 24. And then the government just stopped publishing that data. There's been some financial hits. Country Garden Holdings, one of the largest and strongest property developers in China, missed some payments on its debt and is nearing default. This was put out as one of the strongest property developers. And so there's some financial strains in the property sector. China has experienced some deflation. There's been news reports about prices falling. Now, if you look under the hood, you'll see that most of it was due to energy and food prices falling. That core prices have actually held up. But China is experiencing an economic slowdown much slower than it has seen. And it's, it's a combination of a slower workforce and a lack of dynamism, particularly as the Chinese government places more constraints and mandates on state-run enterprises. So where are we going forward? The International Monetary Fund expects China's GDP to grow less than 4% in the coming years. Capital Economics, a research firm that we subscribe to, sees the same thing that the economic growth on a real basis could be as low as 2% in 2030, because we know economic growth is a function of, is the worker population increasing, which it's not in China, and how productive are they? Are they able to make more, produce more output with less resources to use innovation, technology? And so China's at risk at failing to meet President Xi Jinping's goal of doubling the economy between 2020 and 2035. 
not everything is bad in China. And what's so fascinating, we have this huge economy. Its growth is slowing, but it's still an emerging market economy. Income per person in China is only about $13,000 compared to $76,000 in the U.S. and $42,000 in Japan. There is much more development that could occur. So even though economic growth is slowing, it's not going to go away, China. They'll continue to grow at 4%, maybe less, but it will be growth. And we can see that in how quickly China is adopting electric vehicles and installing renewable energy infrastructure. China's new solar power production coming online in 2023 at 157 gigawatts, just what's coming online this year will be larger than all of this solar capacity in the U.S. at 113 gigawatts. So China is slowing, but we can't write it off because they could increase productivity, which would allow the stock market to hopefully do better. Right now, if we look at the price-to-earnings ratio of the MSCI China index, it's fairly close to its average at 14.6. That's on a trailing basis. Forward-looking, it's at 10.8 versus the long-term average, 11.7. The dividend yields 2.4%. So if companies on that index could grow their earnings 5%, that'd be a 7.4% return. The five-year average earnings growth is around 6.8%. So we don't know. We'll see. I continue to have investments in China, but they're through broad-based emerging markets ETFs. I still like emerging markets, even though China is slowing, because in aggregate, emerging markets continue to grow their economies or will faster than the developed world. Capital economics expects emerging markets to account for 58% of global GDP in 2050 compared to 47% in 2022. The demographic headwinds in the developed world is much greater than in emerging markets. And there are some areas of emerging markets where the working population will grow dramatically in the coming decades, including Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, India, a place where I have investments. That's expected to become the world's third largest economy by 2030. And its working age population will surpass China by the end of this decade, with over a billion workers. So India is in an upward trajectory in terms of its working age population. And that's actually despite the fact that women in India, most do not work outside of the home. In other developing nations, you typically saw the the female labor force participation rate increase. For example, in the U.S., it went from 32% in 1948 to 59% in the year 2000. In India, mostly due to cultural reasons, it has remained around 24%. Its high was back in the year 2000 at 31%. Now it's 24%. That's the 12th lowest in the world in terms of female participation in the workforce. Yet despite that, the working age population in India will continue to grow. And productivity is increasing. We look at what's happened in the digital payment space in India. There's been major innovations and productivity there. The challenge with investing in India is it's expensive because the the index, the MSCI India index, is dominated by some big technology companies. So they're, they're expensive. So I've invested in India with the Wasatch Emerging India Fund, W-A-I-N-X. It's 
buying high growth companies and it's done well for me. I also have emerging markets exposure through the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets High Dividend ETF, DEM. This is also in our adaptive model portfolio examples on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is underweight China. So China makes up about 29% of the overall emerging markets index. It was 40%, but now it's 29%. The DEM, with a dividend yield of over 9%, is about 23% in China. We're seeing China's weight in emerging markets drop over time. And that will continue as these faster growing economies that make up the emerging markets grow faster and grow profits faster. And their stocks appreciate greater than China and China becomes a smaller percentage. And so we don't want to just like not invest in emerging markets. If we own an ETF like VT, the Vanguard World Stock Market ETF, it has a meaningful exposure to emerging markets. I believe it's 10%. I don't have it right in front of me. But we can participate by investing in the global stock market. We can add some additional emerging market opportunities through a specific emerging markets ETF like DEM, or we can invest in a, a country-specific fund like the Wasatch Emerging India Fund. I'm not comfortable investing in a China ETF right now because of the headwinds that we've talked about. Those headwinds have led to basically a 30-year period of underperformance relative to the rest of the world, and it's doubtful whether they'll be able to turn that around. They'll still grow, but this is not a high-octane bet. Some real changes need to be made because of the demographic headwinds. That's our discussion of why China has underperformed. There are still opportunities in emerging markets, particularly India and some other frontier markets. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.